Listen to something fresh. Listen to Salam Media. Anatarian journalism. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Good evening and welcome to the special focus with myself, Zahi Jadwit. Uh, my name is Zahi Jadwit and we are together until 8 p.m. tonight right here on Salah Media. We are coming to you live via salahmedia.com forward slash listen dash live. Uh, we are also broadcasting live on our YouTube page as well as on our Facebook page. You can send us your comments via WhatsApp to the number 061 seven double six zero three double five alternatively you can tweet and tag at salah media and please don't forget to use the hashtag the special focus now the neighboring country of zimbabwe has uh, is making global news headlines as citizens face arrest for protesting against alleged corruption by the government zimbabweans took to the streets to protest against alleged corruption and the country's weak economy the, co the protests coincided with president emerson Mnangagwa's second term in office at least 11 people were arrested last Friday and have since been released. These include Fajizai Mahere, who is a lawyer and spokesperson for the Opposition Movement for Democratic Change, MDC Alliance. Investigative journalist Hopewell Chinono was arrested last week and he was charged with inciting public violence after he exposed alleged corruption by the government regarding to the procurement of coronavirus supplies. There has been international condemnation over the arrest, and many have begun to question the leadership of President Emerson Mnangagwa, who was elected in a controversial election in 2018. So to find out more about what exactly is happening in Zimbabwe, we are joined now by a panel of experts and researchers tonight. Firstly, we have Dr. Nicole Beardsworth, who is an ESRC postdoctoral fellow, fellow of politics and international studies at the University of Warwick. Uh, that's also in the United Kingdom. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Beardsworth. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on the show indeed. Uh, we also have Professor Stephen Chern, who is a professor of world politics at the University of London. Uh, thank you for joining us this evening, Professor. <laughs> Very happy to be with you. And we also have Dr. Chipo Dandara, who is an assistant professor of Africana Studies at Wellesley College uh, in Massachusetts in the United States of America. Thank you for joining us this evening, Dr. Dandara. Thank you so much for having me. And last but not least, we have Professor Brian Raftopoulos, uh, a former Associate Professor of Development Studies at the University of Zimbabwe, uh, and he's currently at the University of Free State uh, as we speak this evening. Thank you for joining us to you as well. Professor Raftopoulos. Thank you very much. Indeed, it's a pleasure to be having all of you on the show this evening. So, uh, Professor Chan, we'll begin with you. Uh, now, we do know that President Robert Mugabe, former president rather, uh, he ruled for quite some time, uh, at least more than 30 decades. Uh, and, of course, that was a controversial regime as well. Uh, and eventually, when he was ousted in a coup uh, in 2017, there was much hope for the nation of Zimbabwe, uh, considering that a new leader would now take over and perhaps uh, that renewed hopes for the country. But since President Emerson Mnangagwa has taken over, what has changed in Zimbabwe since then? 
Well, I think that a very good deal has changed. And in fact, I think the key thing has been a, an evaporation of hope and a degeneration of the economy. And in fact, the two work together as the economy depresses. And so hope also becomes more and more depressed. The government seems to have no economic plan. And what you have when faced with dissatisfaction is an increase in terms of repression. This is becoming very, very noted. The government seems to have no plan to tackle the economy. It has no plan to tackle the current health crisis. So in every single respect, you see an evaporation of hope, a running out of ideas, and certainly a complete absence of anything that I would regard as a technocratic and imaginative set of solutions for the future. It's become a very thought-free, thoughtless government. And of course, uh, this morning, in fact, uh, President Emerson Nangagwa addressed the nation uh, and his message was that despite the hurdles that the country faces, uh, which includes cyclones, droughts, sanctions, and now the coronavirus, of course, uh, it, President Nangagwa reiterated that his goal remains uh, constant and it, that is to reform, restructure and rebuild uh, the country in order to improve the lives of uh, Zimbabweans, of course. Uh, so, Dr. Dandara, do you agree with what uh, President Emerson Nangagwa is saying? Uh, do you believe that he has what it takes to transform the country? Absolutely not. I think the most fascinating thing of what's happened since 27 is how spectacularly Emerson Nangagwa has allowed himself to fail. So, as Professor Chan has said, we've seen this uh, degeneration of hope and, and a complete decline in the economy. Whereas when Emerson Nangago came in in November, he had an opportunity to turn Zimbabwe around in a completely new way, right? On one hand, he had the support of Zimbabweans. So thousands, in fact, I think a million people went out to march against Robert Mugabe. And perhaps against our better judgment, most people thought, okay, so even though he's been part of the regime, he's coming in, he's been ousted himself, he understands that people want something new, something different. So he comes in with, with that ingrown hope from Zimbabweans and uh, that trust that was normally given to the opposition had been placed in, on Zanapia for the first time, right, in a very, very long mm -hmm. time. So he comes in with that. There's also a lot of um, well-wishing from the international community. So Sadak, you know, Sadak was exhausted from having Zimbabwe as this permanent agenda item. And so everyone is thinking, okay, how can he possibly fail? There was no way for him to fail, but somehow he's just managed not only to fail the economy, but to also fail Zimbabweans. Uh, and nobody saw this coming. I mean, we could look at research and we might have predicted that anybody who comes in through a coup is more likely to fail. But I think there was there was this expectation that he might, you know, he might at least outdo Robert Mugabe um, yeah. in well. Indeed. Uh, and now over to you, uh, Professor Raftopoulos. Uh, I want to know what exactly we are dealing with here at the moment, what exactly is going on in Zimbabwe. So uh, you've been doing research as well. Uh, in your opinion, has the situation in Zimbabwe uh, improved or has it de deteriorated? Look, I, I think as both Stephen and Chipo have already mentioned, I think it's deteriorated rapidly. Um, not only the economy, growing inflation, the deterioration of social services, particularly health in the period of COVID-19, uh, the currency problem, and then the, politically, the, whatever goodwill was there, uh, however problematic that goodwill might have been, has just evaporated. 
from the region, from internationally in particular, where you had Munangago uh, talking about Zimbabwe open for business. Uh, there's no such uh, openness. Certainly, the, the the people who are backing him, uh, or at least tentatively, are still uh, people maybe like China and Russia, and that's a very problematic relationship in itself. Mm. But I think the one of the biggest problems is that we've got such a polarization now on Zimbabwe. Nationally, there's huge polarization, uh, and then the, the polarization between the internationals and the, and the regional community on Zimbabwe. We've got once again no consensus about how to move forward, and the sanctions issue in particular is 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 a noted uh, bone of contention. And it's notable that in Zimbabwe's past, the two moments in history when there have been some movement together in 1979 with Lancaster House. 2008 to the GNU was when there was some kind of consensus at national, regional, and international levels, where all were able to push. Uh, even if it was a small move forward, at least you were all able to open spaces. As long as you have a polarization between, especially in the internationals and the regionals, you're going to have an authoritarian regime like, like the Zimbabwe one, using a particular kind of anti-imperialist discourse to solidify its form of rule within Zimbabwe. So I think that's really the tragedy now. We, we, we can't even see a space where you can begin to bring uh, these different levels together. And of course, at national level, the opposition itself is very divided. And in that itself is causing problems within the polity. Mm. Now, Dr. Beardsworth, I'm sure you'd recall uh, in 2017 when a president, a former president, uh, Mugabe, was ousted. Uh, there was quite a bit of ex excitement, as I mentioned earlier on in my introduction. Uh, but unfortunately, that seems to have evaporated now, uh, two years into President Mnangagwa's uh, tenure. So what do you think, how do you think it went wrong for President Mnangagwa? So I think, you know, as everyone else has noted, uh, the president came in with a lot of regional, local and international goodwill invested in his administration. Um, initially, signs looked fairly positive. Uh, there were some technocratic appointments to cabinet, but there were also some really early warning signs, such as the really high number of military elites appointed to cabinet. Then we had the 2018 election, which appeared at a surface level to be conducted on a much more even playing field. But there are still very serious biases in state institutions and the pre-election period still had low level voter intimidation. So in some ways, there were some continuities with the past, while it seemed like there might be a break with Mugabe's administration. But then sort of straight after that election in August 2018, Opposition members took to the streets to protest the results, and seven people were gunned down by the military in front of global media. This was the first moment where people couldn't, could no longer ignore that there were questions around the new administration in Harare. And then there was a public inquiry into the violence, which was chaired by a former South African president, Khalema Maklante, which presented a kind of whitewashed version of events, and no one has been held accountable for these killings, even now. Then again, you know, we saw a similar act of violence in January 2019 when protests over the fuel price uh, were violently put down by the, mil the military and the internet was shut down for three days in what felt like a return to the Mugabe area, era. So we saw in that period at least 17 people killed by security forces 
and dozens of journalists, opposition leaders, and civil society leaders arrested, and in some cases beaten and tortured. So, so I think those were the periods when it started to look like things were going distinctly wrong in Zimbabwe. And uh, over to you now, Professor Chan. Uh, you know, when uh, former M M President Mugabe, he ruled uh, for about three decades, in fact. Uh, so shouldn't we be giving President Mnangagwa more time to raise the country from the state of shambles uh, in which he found it when he took over? Because, of course, uh, three years, I wouldn't believe is enough to undo the ruin that had taken place over three decades, in fact. Uh, would you agree with me on that, uh, Professor Chan? Oh, I think that what you've got is, in fact, a term for President Mnangagwa which has not been productive at all, even in beginning to address the difficulties of the past years. In other words, after his time in office thus far, there's not even the outline of a plan as to how he would wish to take the country forward. And what you have in particular from my point of view is such a lack of planning, such a lack of vision of an articulated detailed sort for the future, that you can ask the question, how long does he need even to come up with an outline plan as to how to take the country forward. He could certainly say, I need time, if that time was predicated against a plan. But it's not just me who's saying there's no plan. The IMF is saying that there's no plan for the repayment of debt and for uh, being able to accept uh, new loans. Uh, China itself has had big questions behind closed doors as to what is Zimbabwe doing? What is the rationale behind the direction that Zimbabwe seems to be going down, and I mean going down. The direction is not an uphill, not an upwards direction. It's very much something which seems to be thoughtless, more of the same, and really a continuation of the Mugabe era, but going downhill even from the Mugabe era. So the question is how much time does he need even to outline to his people how he wants to take the country forward? And to the listeners as well, of course, you can contribute towards this discussion because uh, indeed we'd like to hear from you as well. So you can tweet and tag at Salah Media. Don't forget to use the hashtag, the special focus. And if you'd like to send us a message via WhatsApp, of course, you can use our WhatsApp line. Uh, the number there is 061 uh, If you are messaging us from out of South Africa, of course, the number is plus 2765, uh, of course, uh, Zero six one seven double six zero zero six one seven double six zero three double five. Of course, uh, and in place of zero, uh, we use plus twenty seven. Indeed, uh, but that's just for the listeners. We want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on this as well? Now, Doctor Dandara, you know uh, the recent arrest of that uh, investigative journalist, uh, Hopewell Chinodo. What does this actually tell us about uh, freedom of speech and uh, journalism during the uh, post Mugabe era? Dr. Tandara? Um, so the arrest of uh, Hopo Chimone is interesting on two fronts. Uh, the first being that this isn't the first time that he has written extensively about the ZANU-PF or the government failures. During the Mugabe era, he, were, he made documentaries on violence, uh, very extreme documentaries, if you will, and he wasn't arrested. And so to have him arrested in the post-Mugabe era, raises serious questions about Emerson Nagawa's seriousness with respect to human rights, respect for free media, 
and and he doesn't have any regard right uh this morning when he gave his address uh i have expected him to acknowledge and say you know what maybe we've made some mistakes and some arrests but he doubled down and said that the police are going to be um even sterner so what we are finding beyond hopewell so hopewell is a big name and people have rallied around him but there there are some lesser known journalists who are also having a hard time for of it uh an editor's nephew was kidnapped abducted beaten up uh he's going to need dialysis possibly for the rest of his life he's a 22 year old who was abducted because his uncle is a journalist and so this is nagaga zimbabwe which is in in many many ways a much more extreme than robert mugabe and this is not to undermine the cruelty of robert mugabe but it is to say that emerson nagaga doesn't care to do things behind closed doors he will make public arrests he will do things what the what the world is watching and so this is what we're finding that if if he can go after journalists like opochimono who's a big name then the smaller journalists the lesser known publications are in real trouble and um freedom of media freedom of expression is going to further deteriorate in zimbabwe what's also interesting is that this new media form right so social media is in trouble um they are arresting people based on tweets right so whatever you tweet can be presented in court as as an act against the government uh, so the question is how many citizens are they willing to arrest although it also makes for a very interesting uh situation for them because are they going to arrest all 1 million zimbabweans that are on twitter uh can people come up with you know i've i've never been a big fan of of um pseudonyms on twitter right because i think well you shouldn't hide behind a pseudonym but it really does create a interesting situation if a million zimbabweans all become hopochimono or they all become some editor uh, then how is he going to handle that so i think we find ourselves in a very restricted uh, time period but i think there's also a lot more opportunity for organizing uh for the activists and the journalists mm-hmm. And just on that note, uh, does this not seem like perhaps, um, of course, uh, Hopewell Chinono was, uh, as you mentioned, a prominent figure uh, in Zimbabwe. So does this not appear to be uh, some sort of crackdown against dissent in the country? Absolutely, absolutely. What we're being told, uh, and I think uh, Dr. Biswath already ma- uh, alluded to this, is that Zimbabwe has become more militarized right it Zimbabwe has always been a military state i think to say that it wasn't under robert mugabe is you know it's a bit off but we've become more militarized and i think the military is a lot sterner on um, dissent than the police ever was this morning we saw that the vice president who's a former general one of the two generals three generals who were active um in the ouster of robert mugabe he's now the minister of health right so i think what we're going to see is more and more military appointments which is going to make life very very difficult for anyone seeking to speak out in in zimbabwe so why these military uh, appointments one would ask what exactly is president mnangagwa trying to achieve here with these military appointments just uh, one more question for you dr tandara before we move on to professor octopus Well, it is the military that brought him in. It's the military that gave him the position that he had. And so he is beholden to the military. He's not beholden to to Zimbabwean citizens. And and this is where we go back to, to November 27 and think, well, did did Zimbabweans make a mistake? And I say we, including myself, did we make a mistake in 
supporting a military coup because that's what it was. So we have a man who was put in by the military. Of course, the military is not ready to let Borok. I mean, you go back to November 17 and on, and on that Wednesday evening morning uh, in Zimbabwe where they say, we are interested in the criminals around the president. Well, what that message was sending out is that the next leader will only have military approved personnel around them because that is the only way that they could guarantee that those people would be quote unquote uh, criminals. So we have a military president. And of course, uh, that would make us wonder whether we were actually getting ahead of ourselves uh, when President uh, uh, Mugabe was ousted in 2017. But over to you now, uh, Professor Raftopoulos. Uh, many critics have actually argued that uh, President Mnangagwa will, in fact, do anything to remain in power. And that sort of echoes the uh, regime of President Mugabe as well. Uh, do you think this is a fair description uh, of President Mnangagwa? Yes, I think I think it is, and the, the the point is, it's not peculiar to Zimbabwe. It's a it's a feature of many post-colonial states, where the state becomes the center of accumulation. For those in the in the ruling parties, when they lose state power, they lose everything. It's a zero-sum game, and the state is the center of all the corrupt accumulation that you've seen over the decades. Whether it's been on the land, on the mines, now through the COVID uh, uh, contracts that uh, without the state, there is very, very little that they see uh, opportunities because the private sector is so shrunken and so weak, the state is the center of that accumulation. So you're fast seeing that any pretense of consensual legitimacy is slipping away, that the idea is increasingly a state which relies on coercion and repression. The, the basis, the consensual basis of, of the state however minimal it was under Mugabe, is fast deteriorated. And that presents a challenge for the opposition. How do you confront a state like this through peaceful methods, which is not allowing you spaces to uh, go to demonstrations, to protest? Every election you fight is fraudulent. Uh, during the colonial period, when this happened to nationalists, they took to other means. Now we don't want to see, we hope that doesn't happen. We want continued peaceful process because we know where other forms of struggle can take us. But it's these kind of pressures which the opposition is having to face now. And it's, they are not easy things, easy uh, obstacles to deal with. Um, and it's not made any more uh, easier by the fact that the opposition itself is confronted by its own limitations around divisions, around leadership issues, around accountability, around uh, intra-party violence, the misogynism that often accompanies the forms of politics of the opposition. So we're in a very big mess and it's uh, any critique now must include a critique not only of the Zimbabwean state, but also of the opposition. If we are to move forward, we have to be increasingly honest about both sides of this debate if we're going to move beyond the polarization. And that's where civil society, I think, are very important. They need to take a position which is not linked to any particular party, and to start a new uh, voice around openness of, of politics. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, the civic movement led the debate on, on the constitutional reform. ZANU-PF were following us around that. They were behind. That very quickly changed once the methods of, 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 of changing the state 
towards more repression uh, intervene. But the point is, it took new ways of seeing politics to begin to open up new avenues of opportunity. And I think that's what we need uh, desperately now more than ever. And just quickly before we take an ad break, in fact, uh, I just want to read a comment which comes here from Piers Pigo. Uh, he asks, what are the views of panelists on EFF intervention and their cozy relationship with certain G40 elements, such as Xavier Kasukuwari? Uh, Professor Raftopoulos, you might want to take that quickly before we take an ad break. Well, I would be very wary about such, such relationships. Uh, I think uh, looking at South African, the terrain of South African politics itself, uh, the politics of the EFF is extremely problematic. And I think that the, the danger of the situation in Zimbabwe is holding on to kind of poison chalices of politics, where you think you're moving forward, but you're moving into another form of, 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 of negative politics. And so I think that's why I say the local groups inside Zimbabwe have got to redefine the political spaces so that the outside interventions have to deal with that openness that is created by national forces and not driven by outside agendas. Mm. And just quickly before we take this ad break, would any other uh, one of the other panelists uh, would like to elaborate on this as well? Okay, uh, so it seems we should take this ad break. Okay, so to the listeners as well, remember you can send your comments via WhatsApp to 0617660355. Alternatively, tweet and tag at Salah Media, the hashtag, the special focus. And you can also drop your comment below on our Facebook and YouTube live videos. But now let's take an ad break. And when we get back, we will discuss much more. Please do stay tuned. Welcome back. You are tuned into the special focus with myself, Zahi Jadud, on Salah Media. We are together until 8 p.m. this evening, and we are discussing the recent developments in Zimbabwe. Uh, of course, 11 people have been arrested on Friday uh, as they were protesting against the alleged corruption in the country. Uh, and so our panel this evening, firstly, we are speaking to Dr. Nicole Beardsworth, who is an ESRC postdoctoral fellow of politics and international studies at the University of Warwick. We also have Professor Stephen Chan, who is a professor of world politics at the University of London. In fact, he participated in the transition of uh, Zimbabwe as well. Uh, and he's written a number of books as well on Zimbabwe and the region around there. Uh, we're also speaking to Dr. Chipo Dandara, who is an assistant professor of Africana Studies at Wellesley College. Uh, we also have Professor Brian Raftopoulos former Associate Professor of Development Studies at the University of Zimbabwe. And he's also currently at the University of uh, the Free State. He's doing some research work there as well uh, at this moment. Now, Dr. Nicole, uh, I want to now find out from you. So we are in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, there has been many challenges which have come about with this um, pandemic. And governments have had to now resort to different means to now actually save their healthcare systems. In fact, here in South Africa, uh, just as uh, the same as in Zimbabwe, the government has had to impose a lockdown uh, so as to slow the spread of infection so that uh, the hospitals can be prepared. Now, this has given the Zimbabwean government an opportunity 
uh, some would say, to take advantage of the situation. Has this been happening in Zimbabwe? So I would say it certainly has provided an opportunity to the government to clamp down on free movement of people. Um, for the last, I think, at least three weeks, there have been military checkpoints in and out of the city centre in Harare, which has been present, preventing civilians from moving into the city centre for the most part, unless they can prove that they have critical business to do in the city centre. Um, this has meant that people can't protest, they can't access government buildings, they can't uh, gather, they, there's no freedom to gather at all. This has also allowed the government to clamp down on people's rights. Um, and most often the excuse is that the pandemic uh, allows the government or, or pushes the government to stop people's free movement. But we also know that this has a political effect as well that uh, the pandemic has become a useful excuse for limiting people's free movement, especially when people would like to go to the streets to protest. Uh, beyond that, beyond just the, uh, the sort of legal misuse of the COVID pandemic, we've also seen uh, the abuse of COVID as a way for elite accumulation, as Prof. Rapopoulos was saying. So we've seen uh, certain sectors of the economy have been shut down to private interests. The one I'm thinking of is uh, transport, public transport, which early in March, uh, the government, or I think it was late in March, the government banned the use of free of private sector minibuses. And the only buses that could run were government-owned Zucco buses or government-run Zucco buses. And this is important because those buses are not actually owned by the government, but are leased by the government uh, from a private businessman who is an advisor of President Nangagwa's. Um, all private minibus owners were told that they needed to go into business with this own this uh, close advisor of the president's if they planned to continue running any transport. So this is, in effect, they've used the COVID pandemic as a way to create a monopoly on public transport in and around Harare. We've also seen, as Prof. Raftopoulos brought up, a massive corruption in COVID procurement scandals, such as the Drax International scandal, in which uh, President Nangagwa's sons uh, were closely linked to a person who is accused of having defrauded the government of millions of dollars, um, you know, price gouging on crucial COVID uh, equipment and medical um, medical necessities. So we certainly see a kind of misuse of the COVID pandemic as a, as a way to abuse power in multiple spheres, both in, in the economy and also politically. And that would lead us to the question, how do we uh, be certain that this is indeed a misuse of power? Because you mentioned the checkpoints in Harare. Uh, of course, that's something that has been had to be implemented even here in South Africa when we were in the uh, the tighter lockdown, uh, under tighter lockdown regulations, because uh, at the end of the day, if we want a successful lockdown, we want the lockdown to be implemented successfully. These are the measures which uh, have had to be resorted to. So how do we make sure that this is really an abuse of power uh, on the part of the Zimbabwean government? 
Well, I think we've seen the intensification of these uh, these roadblocks and these clampdowns, particularly by the military rather than by police, which is how we see it done in South Africa. I think it's an important distinction to make. Um, and we see an intensification at periods of increased political contestation. So when people are planning to go to the streets, when people are saying that they're unhappy, when we see, you know, um, Hashtags trending on Twitter that Zimbabweans plan to, to protest. We've seen an intensification of these clampdowns. So I think there is a degree to which some of it seemed legitimate, but of course, um, the government had released a lot of that lockdown quite early on, I think in July, uh, in June, sorry, and hasn't re-intensified it. So I think it's difficult to make the case that this is purely about the disease rather than about political considerations as well. And I want to discuss with Professor Chan as well about the uh, the 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 the. Uh, the the, the, the sanctions which have been in place against Zimbabwe, of course, during the Mugabe era as well. I want to discuss that with Professor Chan just uh, now, but before that, I just want to come over to you, uh, Dr. Dandara, uh, quickly. Uh, so what are the obligations of the Southern African Development Council, uh, that's the SADC, and the African Union, for example, as well, uh, to Zimbabweans during this period when we are seeing uh, such events unfolding in Zimbabwe? What are the 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 obligations of the international community towards Zimbabweans uh, during this period? I think what's required is an, uh, a more open and a committed intervention uh, that would allow for some kind of, uh, I don't want to say transitional government because people have been sort of throwing this around and, and it sounds uh, as if there, there are sinister plans behind it. But I do think that there is a need for the opposition leaders and the government leaders to sit down with the mediator and think about the way forward. The current status quo is not sustainable. And South Africans understand this, right? So when we follow the hashtag Zimbabwean Life Matters um, on Twitter, we South Africans understand that unless the economic situation in Zimbabwe improves, then things are still going to be a burden on South Africa. And so the Zimbabwean situation is not just politics within the country, but it's also about the economic impact of Zimbabwe's failure on the region. Uh, Zimbabwe's farms need to get back to work, but in order to do that, the politics needs to be resolved, right? Zimbabwe needs to get back to trading, but in order to do that, trade has to be uh, released from the jaws of politics. So the SADC leaders need to come in with an honest and committed um, approach to work with both the opposition and the government and, and to form some kind of um, resolution that will move the country forward. We haven't seen African leaders condemn the Zimbabwean government for the August shootings from 2018, for the January 2019 shootings, or for the arrests that have happened in the last month. We haven't heard from, from African leaders at all. In particular, we haven't heard from Cyril Ramaphosa, whose voice is critical at this juncture in, in Zimbabwe's politics. And just on that point of uh, the silence uh, that has been perceived uh, from the SADC, for example, uh, do you think they've failed Zimbabweans in a way? Absolutely. Um, Tabo Mbeki came in and he was lukewarm. Uh, he essentially gave, uh, you know, Zanu PF a pet on the back and said, hey, kind of carry on with what you're doing. 
uh, they have failed Zimbabweans, and beyond that, they failed the region as a whole. But I think that's the kind of that's how the message needs to be reframed, right? That you're not just failing Zimbabweans within the country, but that we're failing the region. Uh, it deteriorating Zimbabwe isn't good for anybody. And so the African leaders need to come together and have an honest conversation about what it means to put the country forward. And this comes at a time when international aid is no longer coming in, right? Uh, you know, just global because of the global finance, because of most countries taking a country first approach. It means that African countries can no longer rely on aid. And so African leaders need to think strategically about how to put uh, their economies back on track. And of course, some of the interventions which would be in, we would need to take uh, to actually help the situation in Zimbabwe, uh, it would require quite a bit of consideration in a way. Uh, so, you know, some of the interventions, for example, the interventions uh, that have been taken uh, by the United States in the past as well, those are to uh, implement sanctions against Zimbabwe. Uh, now, this, of course, uh, of course, this is meant to help the situation, but unfortunately, the result of the sanctions is that uh, majority of the Zimbabweans, the people on the ground actually end up suffering uh, rather than much uh, happening to the elite and the leadership of the country. Uh, so how do we do that? How do we navigate through this, Professor John? Well, I should point out that the sanctions imposed by a great number of Western countries were very highly specialized and targeted. In other words, they were aimed at the elite, at the political elite, at the ruling elite and were not targeted to ordinary people. And what happened, of course, was that two things. First of all, the government used sanctions as an excuse for a lack of action and a lack of capacity for planning action that would be beneficial to Zimbabwe. And of course, what you had was a desire on the part of the international community not to invest in Zimbabwe because of the negative views that were emanating from the way that the government was reacting to the sanctions campaign. Uh, it made Westerners in particular feel unwelcome in the country. Now, I've gone to the State Department in Washington, D.C. I've given evidence before the United Kingdom Parliament and in the Foreign Office here in the UK that we should simply lift the sanctions, um, give the government no excuse because that's what they're being primarily used as right now, an excuse for a complete lack of economic imagination, a complete lack of any kind of planning except to accumulate more wealth in elite hands, particularly the elite that supports the government. And they're being used as an excuse basically to privatize the economy along monopoly lines allied to the party and to the securocrats. So in terms of a convenient excuse, well, this is the most purpose made, but the sanctions are themselves, when you cost them out, not what is causing difficulty for the Zimbabwean economy. And in terms of the United States sanctions, when you look at the amount of foreign aid that US aid gives to the health sector, for instance, in Zimbabwe, what you have is actually net income from countries like the United States that the government of Zimbabwe simply does not acknowledge. And in fact, what we're going to be having in the current uh, season is a huge dependence on food aid, which is going to come from Western nations. So in the light of all of this, what the government has tried to do is to have its cake and eat it too by blaming the West for all of its difficulties while accepting the generosity of the West 
while not putting forward any kind of identifiable technocratic economic planning for the future. It's a cover for a refusal or an inability to plan economically. So, of course, the silence doesn't seem to be helping. Uh, the silence of the SADC and the African Union, for example, that doesn't seem to be helping uh, the situation in Zimbabwe. And the sanctions, of course, uh, those are having negative impacts on the economy of Zimbabwe and the people of Zimbabwe. So what would be a suitable intervention, uh, Professor Chan? Basically, when you travel around the different capitals of the SADC or SADC countries, and you raise the question of Zimbabwean governments of uh, ministries, all you get is an immense world weariness. Uh, they say, Stephen, don't you think we've got enough problems of our own right now? Uh, why do we have to now rescue Zimbabwe yet again? Uh, yes, they would like Zimbabwe to be punching its weight again in terms of the economic productivity and the economic cooperation of the regional grouping. They have missed that. But no one is going to come and rescue Zimbabwe. They have no faith in what the government is trying to do. There's no faith in the opposition. Professor Octopolis is completely correct. Uh, all sectors of the political body in Zimbabwe have let down the citizen body. So in the light of all of this, the question that is asked in the private capitals is, why should we help if the Zimbabweans are not giving any indication that they wish to help themselves? This is a very, very tough verdict. They're not going to say it out loud, but behind closed doors, when you talk to ministers, when you talk to permanent secretaries, when you talk particularly to economic financial planning people in government sectors, this is the response you're going to get. Why? Why should we bother? Would it make anything better? Yeah, and of course, uh, your thoughts on this, uh, Professor Raftopoulos, uh, the interventions which the international community has to take against Zimbabwe. Look, clearly the sanctions debate is lost in the region. The, the opposition will not win that debate in the region because the ZANU and the region will continually present a, a, a solidarity position around outside intervention. So the politics around that is not going to be one in terms of moving the situation forward. SADC, we know, has very weak structures. If things to move in SADC, it depends on individual governments pushing a particular agenda. Uh, in the past, of course, South Africa has been key in moving that. Unfortunately, at the moment, the ANC is, is, is caught up in its own uh, problems, factionalism, corruption, uh, the legitimacy of, of itself as a party, I think, has, has, has waned. So it doesn't have the confidence, doesn't feel it has the confidence to take any initiative on Zimbabwe. So we've, we've got a real problem. And as I said, I think the sanctions issue, I think we need a lot more work about exactly the effects of sanctions on Zimbabwe. Because remember, uh, of course, the, 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 the sanctions, the, 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 under the US Sedera sanctions, Zimbabwe cannot receive any money from the international financial institutions. And that began, the problem with the IMF began in the late 1990s, not in the 2000s. So this precedes the 2000 crisis. But nevertheless, there's, there's no new international engagement around financing. The perception of Zimbabwe as an investable country is very low. And as I said, uh, the sanctions debate is now stuck in a mire. It's not likely to move because of the polarization. 
unless there's some major movement nationally and unless regionally we see a new initiative. So we're in a very, very problematic position. And while that is happening, the Zimbabwean populace are suffering increasingly. You have a state which you can call a minimalist state. It doesn't really care about its population. It cares about holding on to power and holding on to certain streams of revenue, especially extractive streams of revenue through which it can maintain its coercive elements. But with regard to the rest of the population, we've seen the welfareist, whatever welfareism was there has died. The health system is completely deteriorated. Uh, over 90% of the population is now in the informal sector in a kind of uh, uh, desperate attempts to survive on a daily basis. So you've got a very, very bad situation. And of course, as Stephen says, for Sadak and Southern African countries, Zimbabwe is not exceptional. There are other problems in the region, not the least of which Mozambique now is becoming an increasing problem. So while it has its particularities, for Sadak it's not exceptional. And so the only way you change the dynamic is if you start, if there's some events, some processes leading towards a new dynamic around regional, national and international interventions. And of course, as the panelists have mentioned earlier on in this discussion, uh, there seems to be no plan uh, coming from President Emerson of Nangagwa uh, on how he intends on leading the country. So, Dr. Beardsworth, just quickly, uh, where do you see the country going if this current status quo continues? Unfortunately, the direction of travel, as everyone has mentioned, is really uh, not positive. And I think it's actually interesting to talk about them not having a plan because actually it seems to me in some ways the government thinks it has a plan and it thinks it has hoodwinked the international community because we have seen some attempts at reform uh, with sort of quote-unquote reform, you know, with the repeal of certain repressive, uh, repressive laws that were used to uh, oppress the civil society, uh, the opposition during the 2000s. So they've repealed those and replaced them with other legislation. But unfortunately, when you look into the, that new legislation, it is equally as repressive as the legislation that it replaced. But the government, so you heard today in Nangagwa's speech, he says, we repealed POSA, which is that law. We repealed IPA, which is about promotion to promotion of access to information. He says, you know, we've reformed. We're doing all these things. I think it was last week that they agreed to pay out um, white farmers for the land reforms of the early 2000s, which was a kind of red line for the Zadira Act that Prof. Reptopoulos talked about. So the government would say that they're reforming, that they're paying out the white farmers, that they're changing the constitution, that they're you know, really changing the situation in Zimbabwe. But when we look at the substance of those so-called reforms, they're really not moving in a positive direction. The constitutional changes that have been introduced this year are also particularly negative and will have an egregious effect on institutions in Zimbabwe. So unfortunately, as everyone has mentioned, the direction of travel is really not a positive one. And just quickly a comment here from Rokaf and Pospas uh, Alex. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, this question here is, is, is there any guarantee that the removal of sanctions will bring sanity to Zimbabwe? Are we not going to see the same status quo? Consider that Zimbabwe has very weak institutions. Uh, Dr. Dandara? 
You know, I think the responsibility when it comes to sanctions is on the Zimbabwean government. I think they're the ones that need to lobby for themselves. Uh, what concerns me is that you have individuals that are on a list where they cannot travel. The moment that those individuals will be able to travel, we'll see them spending Zimbabwean money on Fifth Street in New York. We'll see them spending money in the United Kingdom because they're not above doing that. So I think the the focus should not be on citizens to lobby on behalf of those individuals, but it is we should keep putting pressure on the Zimbabwean government to implement reforms that are needed to have sanctions removed. They are capable of putting in reforms. They are not incapable of do, of doing that. Which is you know which actually brings me to a comment uh, just about what uh, Professor Bizwater said that. You know, unlike most people, I see the direction not as negative, but as positive. So here's the thing, and, and it's hard to, to be optimistic about Zimbabwe for most people, but there's something small that happened in November that we haven't talked about. So after November right. 7th, what happened is that there's this door that opened, right, where activism mm. became public. Whereas in the past, when Professor Raftopoulos and others were protesting, activism was not public. You often hear Zimbabweans, my generation, younger than me, saying that we were afraid to say that the words MDC in our own homes, right? We were afraid to do that. So what's happened since November is that Emerson Nangawa is not having an easy time of governing because at every turn, Zimbabweans keep protesting. Now, they keep pushing back as people protest, but people are protesting and we're seeing younger and younger generations of Zimbabweans using more and more creative methods of protest. What people expected last week was to have thousands of people on the streets, but instead you had small pockets of people, whether it was strategic, whether it was an accident. But when you have 30,000 people spread across the country, what that does is that it makes it very difficult for the regime to go after every single person with the same level of, uh, of, of violence, right? What we've also seen is that as people were arrested, People kept making noise. In the past, people who were arrested on Friday, Fazai Mahira and others, we might not have seen them for months, but because people keep protesting. So the Zimbabwean solution is going to have to come from within Zimbabwe. And that means that Zimbabweans will have to keep using their voices in a very, very restricted space, but they have to keep speaking. You know, the world is occupied with their own issues. I live in the United States. The United States has changed from the time when I came here as a young, you know, a fresh college student. The United States is focused on what is happening here at home. So you can't go crying to the United States. You can't go crying to the United Kingdom. It's going to take organizing within Zimbabwe. And Zimbabweans are doing this very strategically against a very, very violent regime. But um, so, so I think it's important for, for us to, to, to remain optimistic. It seems very dim, but you know, I get excited by the level of organizing that we're seeing. Uh, it's a different form of organizing, but I think it is some kind of organizing. Something else that's happened that people haven't been paying attention to is that for the first time, we have the middle-class Black Zimbabweans starting to protest. I had never in my life seen people from Borodil protesting. I'd never, people in leafy suburbs with nice gates and swimming pools and all kinds of luxuries, I'd never seen them protest. But for the first time, we're seeing them getting arrested and protesting with the people. And so it's important for the black middle class to come out 
and protest with the people from the southern parts of Harare. Uh, perhaps I'm a little too optimistic, but, uh, but I think there's hope. And you know, there's actually a comment here from uh, Wellington Muzinjiza who says, the voices of the people have been heard. The government panicked. Uh, the feedback has seen ZANU-PF giving press conferences from ZANU-PF building nonstop. The functionaries have been spewing the usual vitriol against their perceived enemies. And now, you know what you speak about these uh, protests, Dr. Dandara, uh, you see optimism in these protests. But I'm wondering now, uh, you know, there's always clampdowns against these protests when they do happen. So will Zimbabweans actually be able to sustain this, uh, these protests and this energy to actually continue with these protests? Just quickly, Absolutely. Dr. Mugabe. You know, Emerson Nagagwa is not Robert Mugabe. You know, Robert Mugabe would never come out and give a press statement to protesters to respond to Twitter. He wouldn't. He would just sit in his, you know, we wouldn't hear from him. So in some ways, I think Emerson Nagagwa is actually a little bit scared of Zimbabweans because he knows that for him to have that position, um, you know, he, he wasn't voted in. People don't like him. People don't respect him. People don't love him. People don't have even the slight hate-love relationship that Zimbabweans had with Robert Mugabe. That doesn't exist for Emerson Nagawa. There is absolutely no love for him. So because of that, I think Zimbabweans are going to keep protesting using very different creative methods. I think it's really important for people to stay safe. Our jails are not safe. We shouldn't have people arrested because they would, you know, they'll get sick either from the conditions there or the virus from COVID. So it's 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 tricky time for people to to be arrested. We don't want people to be arrested. But I do yeah. think that Zimbabweans are creative. Yeah, uh, and at just two minutes to eight p.m. Central African time, we have to begin wrapping up here. So, uh, Professor Stephen Chan, you might want to share with us your final thoughts, uh, and then after Professor Chan, we can go to Dr. Beardsworth, and then Professor Raftopoulos, and finally Dr. Dandara. Well, I agree with Chief absolutely in the sense that what we're seeing now on electronic media. There's huge imagination on the part of Zimbabweans, young Zimbabweans, obviously, but not just young Zimbabweans. The amount of, I think this is going to be a new weapon which will come to the fore, the amount of satire that is now being put out against the regime is both imaginative and I think it's going to hurt a number of people because they're not used to being ridiculed. And this is going to be, I think, a weapon in the protest which has not been used before dark humor, ridicule, satire. So I'm very hopeful in terms of the new ways that civil society and, and individuals, and including middle-class individuals, they're taking these new forms of communication, using them. The government doesn't have a response to these things. Now, the more the government tries yeah. heavy-handed yeah. responses, the more it looks stupid. And just quickly in a few seconds, uh, unfortunately, time is already up. So as brief as possible to the rest of the guests, uh, Dr. Beardsworth, you can go ahead. So I, I would just like to say that I think Dr. Dendera is completely right. Uh, and I'm thrilled that she has this hopeful note for the future of Zimbabwe. And, you know, not to reiterate anything, but I think it's important to note that no one's coming to save Zimbabwe. We're seeing increasing authoritarianism within SADC. We're not going to see the US or the UK stepping in. It's important that Zimbabweans take a step forward and take their country forward uh, using whatever means possible. Professor Raftopoulos? Yeah, I think it's good to hear that hopeful note from Chipo. Uh, it's just a reminder that uh, 
civil society and the opposition have actually changed the dynamic of Zimbabwe politics. People often forget that since the late 1990s, early 2000s, the terrain of Zimbabwean politics has been changed by civil society and the opposition. New constitution, uh, uh, opposition that actually won an election but was denied victory. A GNU which was forced by the, the, the opposition uh, are pushing for new changes. And now we're seeing new pressure. So often people say Zimbabweans are not doing it. Zimbabweans actually had one of the most active civic societies in the, in the, on the continent since the early 2000s. And I think that, uh, that, is a, that is one of the most hopeful things that we've seen. Okay, uh, and sweet and short, finally, your final thoughts, uh, Dr. Dandara. Um, I think I just want to reiterate the importance of, of the opposition getting together and sorting their issues. On, on one hand, we have the struggles with ZANU-PF, but until the opposition gets itself sorted, uh, then you know Zimbabwe is going to continue to be in this uh, rat race. But uh, thank you for having us this evening. Indeed, and so the question that now arises, and we leave it at this, is uh, where, what does uh, what does the future hold for Zimbabwe? Because uh, could it be this uh, bleak trajectory that they could continue on, where we find a repetition of uh, somewhat like the Robert Mugabe regime, or is this movement uh, coming from the Zimbabwean people on the ground actually going to make a positive change for Zimbabweans? Well, I guess time will tell, uh, and that's where we're going to have to leave it for tonight because unfortunately time has run out. Uh, thanks to all of you uh, for uh, participating in this panel discussion and for your contributions as well. Thank you. And thank you to the listeners and the viewers as well for joining us. Uh, of course, your contributions as well, very much welcome. And uh, we are very thankful for your contributions. But unfortunately, time is up. And from myself, Zahid Jadrit, and the team who are working behind the screens, actually, uh, they are the ones you should be very thankful for. Uh, Sadiq Joseph as well. Uh, Thank you so much for all that you have been doing for the show. Uh, but for myself, Zahid Jadud and the team, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.